Welcome to the Ivy Church podcast. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. In a moment, Anthony's going to come up and he's going to be bringing the word this morning. But before he does that, let's take a look at this video. My name's Anthony and my book, The Best Marriage, Why Settle for Less, has just been released worldwide. I wrote it for people thinking about getting married one day. Or if you're already married, I wanted to help, whether you're loving it or kind of losing it, or even living to regret it. The single best predictor of human happiness is social relationship quality. Dr. Gary Chapman, who wrote the blockbuster bestseller, The Five Love Languages, in his endorsement of this book says, it points the way to a better marriage. Nikki and Silla Lee, who founded The Marriage Course say, we defy anyone to read this wonderful book and not find ways to improve their own marriage. I'm blown away by that, but I'm not claiming to be a guru. All I'm trying to do here is to keep learning from my mistakes and share them with you. I've been married now to Zoe for over 12,000 days. The big day was in July 1987. And when I think back to that day, I smile at how in love, excited and naive we were. And so often people put a lot of focus, money, time and energy into that big day, but less into what you do for all the little days after. So following years of counseling people, preparing for marriage or struggling to get closer or stay together, I wanted to give you something from my own ups and downs that you can practically apply to help make your relationship better today. Because really, the most important day for your marriage is not yesterday, or tomorrow, because you can't really do anything about them. But what can you do to make your marriage the B-E-S-T, the best today? That acrostic, B-E-S-T, forms the central theme and a memorable way to invest in your relationship as you think how to build strong or build back to get the best. And the B stands for bless. It's a religious sounding word because most of us are aware of the idea of having a marriage blessing. But again, you don't have to go to a church or, or, or book some big ceremony for a blessing. It starts when you see and receive the other person with all their differences as a blessing in your life. And then you think, how can I bless them today in my words and my actions? Well, you might think, well, maybe I would if they ever did. But a famous verse in scripture says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that applies whether you're a believer or not to marriage. The best relationships focus on what we put into them, not what we get out of them. What if we thought of our marriages every day like a box, an empty box, and we've got to put something in before we can take anything out? Really, there's no love in marriage. The love is in people and we decide where we'll put it. There's no romance, there's no affection, there's no kindness there unless we choose to put it in. And the more we put in every day, the more we'll build up. And this is how to be a blessing. You see the other person as they are. Because I can't change you, I can only change me. See them as being a blessing to you, not a burden, certainly not a curse. And then we decide, how can I be a blessing and bless them? Give, serve, smile, help, cheer. The book has all kinds of other practical ideas and questions to go deeper and apply this. But in essence, you're a blessing whenever you notice or discover your spouse's needs and meet them. That can fill your relationship with trust and joy and happiness. If your marriage box feels empty today, rather than 
kick it and complain. Ask what you can deposit today. You can make investments in your marriage just as you would in the bank, in the world that is making withdrawals all the time. So be a blessing. That's the first part of getting the best marriage. Why settle for less? Well, rarely have I agreed with an advert for a book more than the one that I've just watched. And uh, I do encourage you to uh, buy the book if you're married or considering marriage or as a gift for somebody who is married, just to encourage them. But also that video is going to go out later in the day. And I encourage you, if you believe in marriage, you think that actually it's important that people, that, that I believe the fabric of society is strengthened by marriage. If you would like that, if you would share it, if you would put it on your Facebook too, it will help us to be able to get the word out about this book, which actually uh, has gone worldwide and, and seems to be doing really, really well. It's an update on a book that I wrote some years ago. To be honest with you, it's 10 times better for five years, more um, things that I learned the hard way uh, in marriage. So I do encourage you to pray, please, for that project, that book, because um, it's something that matters a lot to me. And, you know, you you put a lot of hours, hours and hours and hours and hours into writing a book. Some of you, it might take you a little while to read it, but the hours that I've put into that book really matter. And we give a part of our life into something like that. And I wonder what it is that you are giving your life for. Everybody's giving their life for something. How will you be remembered by the things that you have put your life into? There's a Harvard Business Review book, a best-selling book by a guy called... Uh, Clayton Christensen and it starts out looking at what fulfillment really needs it's called the book is called how will you measure your life and uh, obviously they look at they do surveys they look at businesses and organizations and they say in there what would make you happy and people might talk about more money of course or or a bit more recognition or if the boss was nicer or whatever but in the end they level those things out and they say those things actually don't really make anybody happy and so it's effectively, it's when you move away from striving for success and moving towards significance, they say, that things start to make a person more fulfilled in their life and particularly in their workplace. To be professionally successful is one thing, but to be able to be successful in the rest of your life involves what they call, and they have a chapter on it, living a life of integrity, having it all fitting together. That's really what integrity means. Not that you're a success over here and messing it all up over here. And he describes actually, it's a brilliant book, but he describes at one point going to a business school review over the years. He keep going back to these, these reunions and finding that these people that he thought would be amazing or people who came along and suddenly they've, they're now like running some central bank and, and earning loads of money. They weren't at the next one because, because they're in prison for embezzlement or, or whatever. And there's various people that, that they seem to be the perfect couple and now their marriage has fallen apart. And there's all these people. And what he says is none of these people planned that that would be the case in their life. Nobody plans to screw up their life in these ways. They just measured success wrongly. So as I say, that's from his great business book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And today we're going to start reading today's passage. I can encourage you to open 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you're going to see that the Apostle Paul from this, if you've been in with us in this series, you'll remember he's in this horrible prison cell on death row. And yet he writes his letter out to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he, he actually says the more important question is not how will you measure your life, but how will Jesus measure your life when it finishes when as we read here he comes to judge the living and the dead 
Now, I don't assume for everybody else who's here or everybody else who's watching us that God may even figure in that assessment for you right now. But I do ask you to very solemnly consider that question because I believe one day it really will matter. One day we'll all stand before God and, and we'll all give an account, the Bible says, for the things that we've done in this body and in our life. And that will happen sooner or later. And the studies, as I say, that, that, that we're going to look for uh, and the way in which we're going to do this, we, we're going to be considering Paul's final words the last words that he's writing to Timothy. But before they do that, I want to read some other last words of some famous people, some famous last words, because they can often show what matters most to them. P.T. Barnum's last words. How were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Groucho Marx. Die, my dear. Why? That's the last thing I'll do. Oscar Wilde. Either that wallpaper goes or I do. Humphrey Bogart, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Queen Elizabeth I, all my possessions for one moment of time. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Those were the last words of Mother Teresa. You see, Sometimes those last words that we speak will really help to sum up what's been most important to us in our lives. And please have your Bible open and read along with me from 2 Timothy chapter 4 because I was praying about this today. And you know what? My job is not so much to feed you, it's to teach you to feed yourself. I'm here to help you to learn to cook so that you can actually feed other people too. So don't just sit there thinking, oh, Anthony's job now is to feed me. No. I'm here to help you to become a self-feeder and a self-learner and somebody who can dig into the Bible yourself. To the extent I do that, my ministry is working. To the extent I fail to do that and you become dependent on me, I have done my ministry wrongly. So, 2 Timothy chapter 4, it's in the Bible. Please open it and read along with me. Because we're going to see here what Paul has given his life for and how the end was near, and as he faced that final curtain, what he passed on to Timothy as his final words are not, I did it my way, but doing it Jesus' way. And there's three things that meant that, that came out of that that he, he shaped his life by, and you may have your own list. But as we go through them, I think I'm going to decide these are the ones that I want to aim at too. So let me read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. First of all, I charge you, I charge you, literally, I command you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Jesus is going to return one day. And his kingdom. He's going to bring his kingdom with him. The kingdom now is invisible but real. Then it will be really visible to everybody. What's the command? Preach the word. Convince. Rebuke. Sorry. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Live your life ready. Convince, rebuke, that's like negative things in a sense. To, sometimes we've got to say a hard word. Exhort with all long-suffering or patience, that's encouraging other people. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires or lusts, because they have itching ears and they just want their ears to be scratched. I've got a little dog, loves having her ears scratched, and rolls over, ooh, scratch my ears. He says, there's people going to be like this in church. It's going to be all about them, all about my needs, all about me getting my needs met. Please tickle my ears. 
They will heap up for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Or another version says, discharge all the duties of your ministry. What's your ministry? What's your call? Everybody who belongs to Christ, everybody has a call from God. You know, people sometimes talk about a call to go into ministry. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got a specific call here to preach, to be a preacher. And, they, and you're watching this, your call may not be that. That might not be your call. For some people, it is your call and you need to work it. I don't know specifically what your ministry will be, but I do know what your call is. Every one of you, if you say you belong to Jesus Christ, and this is what will be judged at the final judgment for you, you will not be judged for salvation. That's already happened. You've been found, found guilty of sin and then set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the, the verdict on you is you are forgiven, that you are saved once you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know that and you've never done that, then do it today. I can give you the opportunity today. It's the most important thing I can say to somebody else today is give your life to Jesus. Only he can free you from your sin and help you to live fully in this life and forever in the next. The judgment for Christians will not be for salvation, but we will be judged. It's really clear in Scripture about our ministry, about what we've done with the life, with the gifts, with the call that God has put upon our lives. So I don't know what you've been doing or what you've been called to do. I don't know what you're doing right now, but I do know that if you're ever going to live a fulfilled life the way that God talks about it, you must fulfill your ministry. Which is another way to translate that phrase, as I say, discharge all your duties. Your call is ministry. Your call is serve. And actually, it's not your call at all because it's not about you. It's about God. It's about serving God by serving other people. That's ministry. The rest is just detail. The word there, ministry, diakonia, is servanthood. Discharge all the duties of being a servant. You may not be an evangelist. You might not get paid to work for a church in that office. But he says, you know, whatever work you do, you can do it and be good news. You can do it and bring the evangel, the good news of Jesus, by the way that you walk, walk and the way that you work and by your attitude, by the way that you work on teams, the way that you speak and all those. And whether you focus on yourself or you focus on serving and helping other people. And I know for some people, some people feel sad because you feel like, well, I used to have a ministry. Even here at church, before COVID, you played in the band. You led in some way. You, you were welcomed people on a site. Oh, there's so many ministries we've been grateful for, for people being able to do. When we met in all those different places, in all those ways, and you miss that, and you miss that, and I understand that. But please don't think that doesn't mean you haven't got a ministry. Because you've always got a ministry. The ministry is always serve. Find a place to serve. Tonight in this prayer and conversation meeting, I'm aware some people have got questions about what our micro church is because we talked about that. And we've put this document out, an internal staff document, because we wanted to be open to help people to understand more about that we care about our staff and we've consulted well with them in, through the changes. But it's 
put a lot of people into a complete spin because you're kind of reading a letter from somebody else for somebody else and thinking, ooh, but this means that and this means that and it doesn't mean that because you're not reading it effectively. It wasn't written for you. It's not the vision document of the church. But some people, as I say, are asking about, well, what is this micro church? Yes, we've had some training and we've had some brilliant people who've stepped up in the first wave of training to learn how to do micro churches. But if you were here when COVID first hit in March last year, I actually said to you, anybody in Ivy who belongs to this church, I said, I will, I will now shift my focus and the focus of this ministry towards equipping you for the church that meets at your house. That's how our focus is going to be. And I encourage you to see your place that God has put you as the church that meets in your house. I said, go and anoint the house. You're the light. You've been put there on purpose by God for this season. You're, you are a church. So effectively... You're a micro church right there. And then it might only be you and the cat, but it's also your friends and your neighbours and the person down the street and the person that you interact with day by day and the people that you're connecting with on Facebook. All those network of connections are your micro church. So here's my question to you How is it going? How's your micro church going? How is it growing? How many people have you been praying for? How often have you witnessed to those who don't know Jesus? How often have you encouraged those within your circle who do? How often have you tried to meet with them, pray with them, bless them, focus on them, pastor them? Because you have a responsibility. See, in the end, you, I, won't, you won't be, I won't be accountable for, for your ministry. I'll be accountable for mine. And I won't be accountable effectively to you so much for mine. I'll be accountable to God for it. But my, my accountability to this extent that I equipped you to grow your church. And some people's micro church this year hasn't grown at all. And you know the reason why? You haven't. Because you haven't grown at all. You just kind of kept on going in the same way, waiting for everything to go back to a normal that will probably never happen. And before you switch me off or get offended about that, I think this is really important because it's key to what matters most in life. I think we have this very often this very false and unbiblical idea and it gets worse when we end up paying some people to do church work, that it's about me being fulfilled rather than meeting the needs of the people that I'm called to do ministry to and serve, that I am to fulfill the role of a servant in the name of the one who washed feet and then said, this is what great ministry looks like. This is ministry, whatever you do. Find some smelly feet and wash them. That's how you get to be great in God's kingdom. See, we don't get to decide so much our ministry. We get to discover what the need is, and then we get to decide whether we'll step up and meet it or not. The need defines the ministry. So I I don't know what your call will, will look out specifically in this season. Maybe some of you will be like me, called to preach the word, Not my word, by the way, the word. I only want to preach the word in season, out of season, whether people like it or not, or as my friend Pastor Kamaloffi says, whether the devil likes it or not. I just want to fulfill my ministry. But your life, your words, your attitude, make no mistake, they're preaching. They're preaching a message. My call endures hardship. It involves hardship. And because last week we read that Paul said, everybody who wants to lead a godly life is going to suffer hardship. It's going to be part of your call too. If you think ministry should just be easy, you totally misunderstood it. 
And you can end up thinking that ministry, therefore, should be all about you. And again, you miss it when you think that because it's never about me. It's about the other and it's about God. And it's about ministering to them in the power of the Holy Spirit because I can't do it myself. It's like picking up a towel and filling up a basin and finding dirty feet and saying, how can I serve? Who can I serve? When can I serve? Now. And God will tell you, Jesus will tell you an answer to that question. Paul says, now coming on, he's going to go into the next bit. If you'd look at verse 6, just through to verse 8, I'm going to read this. Paul says after that, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, that day of judgment. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, he's talked about the first mark of a life that's fulfilling and successful the way God would define it, is that it's to be faithful to the call. And now... Paul says, I want to be faithful to the end. I want my life, he says, to be faithful to the end. And Paul says he's getting ready to make a drink offering. Wonderfully Jewish language from the Old Testament instruction about how they used to worship. And we can be fooled, you see, into thinking that worship is coming into a church building and singing a couple of songs or even watching some people sing while we keep our masks on and kind of hum along a little bit. But life is meant to be worship. Your, your worship is not what, just what you do for an hour or so on a Sunday or where you're at home right now. My life is my worship. And in Numbers chapter 15, you read about the tabernacle. And first of all, they brought the burnt offering and that was the sacrifice for sin. They would get an animal and to show that the wages of sin is death and that death must have its wages paid. They would kill an animal. They would sacrifice that animal. Something else was died instead of me. And obviously that only pointed forward to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. An animal is slain, put on the altar fires. And then on top of that, they would put flour and some oil was sprinkled on top and it would make this sweet aroma like a barbecue with bread on top. But then finally came the drink offering as a sweet wine was poured out. And Paul said, that's a picture of my life. Ever since, he says, I came to know Jesus had given his life for me, I have made my life a living sacrifice. And you know they say the problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to keep getting off the altar. But Paul says, from the Damascus Road when I first met him more than 30 years ago until now in this stinking prison cell on death row, every day I just wanted to pour my life out for him. And now finally, he knows he's going to be martyred. He knows they're going to behead him. Gross, he knows the blood is going to be poured out as that happens. As a Roman citizen, he can't be crucified. He has to be beheaded. But you know what Paul had written before? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live, I live to the Lord. If I die, I die to the Lord. He's saying, whatever happens, I'm always the Lord's. And he's like, I've lived my life. My life's been like the burnt offering. And and, you know, now he says, finally, I'm going to put the, the final bit onto that. On top of a life that's been laid down as a burnt offering... 
for the one who gave it all for me. Now my execution, my martyrdom, the last bit of my life, I want to be faithful to the end. I'm going to pour out the rest of the life, my last few days, moments, minutes, hours to him as an offering. Such beautiful, brutal imagery. And there's that word departure. I love that. See, we don't usually think about departure in terms of death, do I? When you, you know, I, but when you think about departure, what do, I think about an airport. I think about trains. I think about the screens up there. And it says you're leaving here to go somewhere else. That's what Paul says he's going to do. That's what Paul meant. The, word, the Greek word there is analusis. And, the, and it's also the Greek, it's a very interesting word. It's also used for unyoking an animal that's been tied to a yoke. So, you, you know, you've got an ox and it's been pulling it and then you unloosen it and so it, it loses its burden. Paul says, when I depart, I'm going to be losing this burden, the things I've had to carry at times through this heavy load of life. It's also used, the same word is used to loosen the chains of a prisoner. Paul says, you know, I'm in here, I'm in these chains, I'm waiting to die, but any minute now I'm going to be free. Any minute now I'm going to be free forever. It's also used, and remember Paul was a tent maker, for the, the word would be used for when you folded down the tent because you're now going to go somewhere else. So he says, I'm going to leave this temporary thing behind. I'm going to get something permanent in the future. I'm going, to, I'm going to the room, Jesus said, that's been prepared for me in the Father's house. Analusis is also that it's used for unloosing a ship and its mooring ropes. How many times would Paul, since that call come, he said he's in face shipwrecks, he's gone all over the world as best he could to tell people about Jesus. How many times has he stood on a deck and he's waved goodbye to friends and other people in order because of the call to go and tell other people about Jesus, knowing he's going to face persecutions and hardships and stonings and rejection in all those places. But he says goodbye to them. He departs from there to go to somewhere else because of the call of God. And now he says, very soon I'm going to let go of the rope of this life. I'm going to go to somewhere better, better by far because of Jesus. And he says, I'm ready for that. Are you ready for that? Are you still scared of death? I don't often think about death in terms of physical terms. Very rarely do I ever wonder about how I'll die. But I do wonder a lot about how I'm going to live. And I want to, I want to consider very closely and carefully, how am I going to live spiritually? Not thinking about how I'm going to die physically. I'm ready. Whatever comes, how will you measure your life? How do we see our lives and our death? See, Paul knew, first of all, it was all about sacrifice. That was his primary life metaphor. Servanthood, and he was faithful to the call. And then sacrifice, he wanted to be faithful to the end. And then finally, let me read verses 9 to 22. A bit long, but stick in with me, we've got time. This is the word of God. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for my ministry. And Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. He's like saying, I'm not going to judge this guy. I'm leaving him to the Lord. You also must beware of him, for he's greatly resisted our words. At my first defence, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, 
so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. What a great thing to write from prison, thinking about Daniel and the lion's den. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. And somebody should say, Amen. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, but Trophimus I've left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Winter comes, he's not going to be able to travel in winter. It's also getting cold and he wants his cloak. <laughs> Eubulus greets you as does Pudens, Linus, Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Remember why he's writing this book. If you've been with us in this series, you're going to know Timothy is facing major wobbles. He's, got, he's a young leader. He's, he's insecure at times. And people just don't like him leading. People oppose him. People don't respect his authority there at Ephesus. Other people come in, they're false teachers. They're causing division. We've seen all of this as we've read it. But Paul's charge is just to fight, run your race, live this way and die this way. We've seen how much he loves Timothy. Over and over again, he calls him his son. And as Paul faces the last days of his life and closes out this last letter, he writes his last paragraph. Who's on his mind? People. People are on his mind. The people who've made up his life because our life is made up of people. You know, they say, don't they, in times like this, my life flashed before my eyes. People talk about that. And I bet when that happens, people don't so much picture that thing I bought, that possession that I got. What do we do? We think about people, don't we? We're going to think about the people that God's brought into our lives. So Paul reflects on those who shared his life. Some have shared his ministry. People who were crucial and critical to everything that he'd ever done as he tried to live for Christ. And as he's tried to be faithful to the service of God. And he wanted to be faithful to the end and live a sacrificial life. And what he wanted to do, what he urged Timothy to be, as he evaluated these names that we read here, was he, he said, be a faithful friend. Be a faithful friend through suffering. Because that's when we find out who our friends really are. Paul warns Timothy, as we've seen about this one common foe. Alexander, But then he just categorises his friends. And as you go through that, you can see some people will in your life and mine turn out to be false friends. He names Demas, a deserter, who'd been one of his closest ministry partners. You can read about Demas in Colossians and Philemon. But Paul says here at the end, when the going got tough, he got going. He literally says, he left me in the lurch. He utterly abandoned me when I needed him most. We don't know the detail of that, but we know that this is because he cared more about this present world than he cared, well, he cared about Paul for sure. And scripture says anybody who is a friend of the world cannot be a friend of God. Verse 16, Paul says he found out that many of those people that he thought were friends, many who he will have served, many he will have brought to Jesus, many people that he's founded churches and put them in positions of leadership and responsibility and poured his life into them as he's poured his life out for them. 
When, in the Roman system of law, you see, you had like two trials. First of all, you were tried to see whether there was a case to answer. And then secondarily, you were tried as to whether you were guilty or innocent. And he says, at my first trial, do you know who came to stand with me? Who came to stand alongside me? Literally, the word means like an advocate, like a lawyer. Who stood alongside me when I needed them in that moment? Nobody. Nobody. How does that hurt? People that he thought would be there for him and they just weren't there. False friends who were there when it suited them and when they could get something from him. But now, when he needs them, nowhere to be found. Faces flash before his eyes. So much disappointment. But what does he say? Get them, God! Ah! No, he says this. May it not be charged against them. Because he can't afford the extra imprisonment of bitterness nobody can we'll all have people let us down but then he shifts his focus and he calls to mind and lists by name again many faithful friends maybe you could write out the name of some people who've been faithful to you even during this last year people who've been there for you and encouraged you write down their names pray for them thank God for them send them a note and say thanks for being a faithful friend to me you could write those names out and be grateful Summer ministry partners, Crescens, Titus, who Paul apprenticed and trained and then sent out to go and plant churches in other places. Absent friends, if you like. Old friends like Priscilla and Aquila that he knows from way back. Luke and Onesiphorus, who'd come to visit him, we find out there in that dark and horrible place of imprisonment. He even mentions Mark, and if you track his story, Mark's somebody who let him down in the past. At one point, Paul said, I find him really unreliable and I don't really want him to come with us on the journey. But they'd obviously been reconciled. And got over that to do stuff together because he says, bring Mark with you because now he's, I find him useful to me. He's useful. And guess how useful he was? Well, he wrote the Gospel of Mark, so that's pretty good. Erastus and a few others get named at the end. No long list. You might not have a long list. Make sure it's a list of some people though and you're on other people's list as a faithful friend. People who are not ashamed of him or his chains. And Paul in this dark place at the end of his life starts to recall these people because our lives are made up of people now and forever who are you going to be with depends where you're going to be and he knows where he's going to depart and he knows where he's going to arrive and he says to Timothy you know what I'm alone now I'm in this stinking cell and winter's coming and it's going to be even worse and you won't be able to put to sea then and come to me then. So would you, Timothy, be a faithful friend too? And what does a faithful friend look like? Well, it says they do their best and they come when, they, when you need them. It's not about what they might say or promises that might be made. In the end, you'll know who your faithful friends are because they do their best and they come when you need them. I want to be a friend like that. Not sure how well I've done at it. How will you measure your life? How will Jesus measure your life? How many people are there going to be who are going to say that I served them well because I was faithful to the call of God on my life? When I finish this life and depart and go to whatever great stuff God's got for me next, when life is harder than imagined, 
Am I going to found to, in this life of worship the one and being faithful to the one who's been faithful to me right to the very end? Will there be people at the end of my life who don't just say I was a Facebook friend or a fickle friend, but that I was for them a faithful friend? How many? Because for every one of us, there's a departure. Have you booked? Where are you going to be? However good or bad this present life is and how it ends, where's the next life going to look for you? You could end this life living in the place of in incredible luxury and wealth. And you could have all that, but you would trade it all. The moment eternity leads to hell. Or you could put your trust in Jesus Christ and even from the darkest, hellish places, the loneliest places here on earth, to know that you depart and arrive in paradise. We're all going to die. But we're all also going to live forever somewhere. For a believer, there'll be times. This life for a believer will be the closest you ever get to hell. And for an unbeliever, this life will be the closest that you ever get to heaven. I say that on the authority of this book and the teaching of Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ, to remember from the start of the series where Paul was again, this fetid, stinking prison. As he reviews the movie of his life, as he thinks about the friends and the foes and the pressures he's faced and the places that he's been, Paul thinks about who's been a friend and who's been a friend to him. And what must it have been like for him to have poured out his life for so many who are now nowhere to be seen and there's just a few left. In the same way as for Jesus Christ, there are only a few left standing at the cross as he gave his life for every one of us for our sins to pay the price. He says, nobody stood with me when I needed them most. What a sad epitaph that could have been, that would have been, to come to the end of your life feeling sad and alone and abandoned. See, this year we've all felt dark, confusing, lonely times, I'm sure. And no human being, no community of human beings could ever give and be all that you need to be able to keep going through those tough times. But... Verse 17, but the Lord, the Lord Jesus, he stood at my side. Maybe when Paul was just lying there, I picture him despairing at times. He must have been in the dark. He couldn't stand up himself. No Timothy, no Luke, no cloak, nothing to read. But Jesus is the one the Bible says he sticks closer than a brother. Do you know him? If you're his friend, if you know him today, you can be sure of his promise when he says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. doesn't matter where you end up in this life and who's with you and who's not with you. Do you know him? If you do, love him, worship him, trust him. Give your life for him as he gave his life for you. Tell other people about him. Serve them for him. And if you don't, doesn't matter what else is going good in life. In the end, this is what matters most. And he's there with you now. My question, most important question to you is, are you ready for your departure and your arrival? And if you say, Jesus, I want to be with you, 
in this life and forever, then he will stick to you closer than a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or any friend, however faithful they may have been to you. And if you ask him to forgive your sins because you'll know that I've not always been the kind of person I would hope other people would have been to me, then you will know that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything in the whole of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and only in Christ Jesus. So open up your heart to him now. As you're you're there, open your eyes if you want to or close your eyes, doesn't matter. Open up your hands to him and say, Lord, be that faithful friend to me. Now and always, Lord, Show me what the call on my life is so that I can be faithful to it today. Not waiting for some point in the future for you to make it clear. Show me where I can serve, how I can serve. That servant heart is what matters. Give me that heart like yours to serve and to love. And Lord, I want to be faithful today and to the end. Whatever the future holds, I want to trust in you and pour out my life as worship to you. No matter what comes, no matter where you lead me, and Lord, I want to be a faithful friend. I want to make commitments and keep them to other people. I want to be faithful and encouraging to others, not looking for them to all meet my needs, but to look for who I can serve, who I can love, who I can connect with, and I can encourage and be a faithful friend, that I can go to them and serve them and love them in your name. Thank you that you are always faithful to me. Lord, on that final day, may we be found faithful in you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts, go to ivychurch.org slash media.